we previously uh, had been uh, talking about how in chapter 4, especially, you know, it's, it's written to Hebrews, it's written to Jews, and there's a fair amount of the context that is very specific to them. It has application, you know, to Gentiles, broader to us. We had talked about uh, how accurate, uh, penetrating, and surgical the Word of God is and the things that it does and accomplishes. And we've had this mention of a high priest, Jesus functioning as a high priest, and we're going to discuss that a little more this evening. Uh, it is building towards chapter 7, where there is a lengthy uh, discussion and uh, understanding of Jesus Christ being in the order of Melchizedek. So, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because he, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer, offer sacrifices for sins. No one takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So a few things to examine in that first section. Uh, the first being that the high priest is a man. You know, you have the, the identity that there is God and that there needs be a man to help have this bridging communication and this bridging relationship that takes place. So there is automatically with the idea of priesthood, that sense of being a mediator. Uh, anyone who tries to present themselves as a priest is functioning under that assumption that that their one is, you know, whether it's a totally pagan system or not, that there is a God, a deity, and that that person is serving as a go-between, a bridge, a mediator between the man and the God. Um, you know, here, obviously, you know, we have the mindset that there's only one. There's the true and living God alone. Everything else falls under that realm of idolatry, false religion. But, uh, you know, I make that point because you're going to run into people who have that sense in their behavior, in their religion, in their teaching, whether they're going to say it outright or not, they're, they're presenting the position of priesthood. You've got to go through them to gain access to God. Here, you know, Jesus Christ is being established, especially for these Jewish believers. The, much of what's said gets very uh, specific to anyone who is a believer, but here... For the Jew, this is especially critical because they have the priesthood of Aaron. And with the priesthood of Aaron, they're struggling with the concept of Jesus being a priest. He offers both gifts and sacrifices to the Lord, those things which would erase the debt 
erase the guilt, erase the sin, and then also the fellowship, um, the, the offerings that would be made that are pleasing to the Lord and, and could further bind the relationship between God and the person who's offering, bind them together. Uh, this statement about the priest has to all also offer sacrifices for himself. Why? You're dealing with God. Uh, you, you don't achieve perfection as a man. You don't have the ability to stand before God and act as though there isn't uh, the barrier of sin and failure between you and God. Lastly, uh, just that I'm making note of here, that idea that the priesthood is not taken on by themselves. Uh, that's a significant, significant to the context of Jesus Christ because they have this mindset that Jesus has assigned this priesthood to himself, especially the non-believing Jews. They, they look at Jesus in this position as the mediator between God and men. They look at that as very presumptuous. And the point is Jesus did not appoint himself to that position. Um, you know, he he was sent. We talked about this before. You look at, uh, you know, New Testament word study, the number of occasions where Jesus Christ refers to as being sent. You know, nearly 60 times in the New Testament. You got some 27 odd times in the book of John. He's saying over and over again, I was sent, I was sent, I was sent from the Father. One thing to say that, right? If you don't have the proof that you were sent, uh, you know, his works, his miracles, the healing, his teaching, all, all confirmation that he was, you know, as we read in chapter four, he was an apostle sent out from God, chosen by God in the same way he chose the 12 apostles and sent them out to be his ministers. God chose Jesus and sent him out to be a minister, and to be the high priest. He didn't appoint this office unto himself solely. God appointed him to this position to come and minister to the people. Verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And I just want to put this in context because Hebrews is going to do it and then several other passages of scripture put this at the crucifixion and then even more significantly at the resurrection so when we talk about Jesus being begotten sometimes there is the confusion that it's his birth that it, when he came into the world and uh, some of the cults even do that, they warp that to the degree that they say Jesus didn't exist and that he wasn't God and that God brought him into existence the same way we were brought into existence and that when he was birthed into this world, that's when he was begotten of God. Uh, the, the passage is clearly telling us that it was through the process of death and resurrection that God is putting this stamp of begotten, born, firstborn from the dead, is what we're talking about 
in that context. So keeping that in mind, he also says in another place, verse 6, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's uh, actually quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, in uh, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. Now we're getting the uh, description of when he was begotten. So now uh, you can think um, beginning at the Garden of Gethsemane as the suffering is there and he's calling out and crying out to God and asking his apostles to pray with him. He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Uh, you know, what, what did he say? Um, you know, if there's any way, uh, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. The fear of God, right? We're going to hear uh, the author of Hebrews say here in a minute that he learned obedience through this process. So Jesus is, you know, in subjection to God through this process, even though you know, of his own will, he doesn't want to go through these things. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. As a difficult concept to grasp that Jesus being you know, the all-knowing God came here and had to learn something. And the, the thing that he learned, described here, is obedience. He learned obedience through the process of suffering. The scripture paints it that way for us so that we can understand how Jesus identifies with us. You know, the, previously in four and elsewhere in the scripture where it's telling us that you know we have a, a high priest who uh, he can sympathize with us and we can sympathize with him because he was in all points tested in the same way that we are. He, you know, he had to subject himself to God's will. He had to subject himself to uh, temptation and the pain of of his uh, you know trials that he went through. So here we see that being described this godly fear though he was a son yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and having been perfected don't don't think of that as meaning that he was not uh, that he was imperfect prior to that this is the idea of completion and it's not it's not even really the idea um, it's difficult to phrase it out but it's not the idea of there was something missing it's the idea of you know at the cross, it is finished. You know, the finality, crossing the line, you know, dotting the I, uh, crossing the T, that, that, that type of completion, uh, you know, the, the finishing of the task. Um, it has the idea of what we say when we mean perfect, but it's much more the concept of completed and finished. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That term eternal salvation is kind of interesting. And it puts uh, that term we use in Christianity so often, eternal life, uh, into the proper uh, context. Um, 
because you know as far as we talk about having eternal life everyone is going to live for eternity every human being the issue is where are you going to live you're going to live in the presence of the lord <clears throat> are you going to live you know uh, outside hell are you going to be excommunicated for from his presence for eternity uh, so here, you know, the idea of what's being said, you know, eternal salvation. You read in the book of Revelation, and it, it talks about that final judgment and casting all of that, you know, death and hell and Hades and Satan and, uh, you know, false prophet and uh, the Antichrist uh, into, you know, outer darkness. Uh, you know, the, the, the real eternal hell. Is, and it, it, the scripture tells us, and this is the second death. You, know, you have the physical death that takes place. The second death is that eternal separation from God. So in this context, you know, we're getting a, a glimpse of that eternal life. You know, it would be, I guess it would be odd to say it this way, but in contrast to the second death, this would be the second life. You know, the, the eternal life is, is what's being spoken of here. The eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, they're going to talk a lot more. My temptation is always to run off on the rabbit trail of Melchizedek at this point. But chapter 7 really digs into that. Uh, th the thing we should recognize is that the author of Hebrews uh, just sort of plunks this down a couple times in front of the Jewish readers with the mindset of, like, that should satisfy you for now. We'll get in more detail. You know, Jesus, how could Jesus be, you know, a priest or the high priest, order of Melchizedek? And then, you know, here, order of Melchizedek. And, and you know, that's sort of setting in their minds, like, okay, I could, you know, for now, as he goes through greater and greater description of the details of function, then in chapter 7 he's going to get, to the details of explanation and how Jesus is, uh, you know, in the order of Melchizedek. That, of course, for you note takers, reaches back to Genesis chapter 14. It begins at verse 18. Abraham has gone out to rescue his nephew Lot, defeats the enemies, is returning to his dwelling place, Genesis, uh, Genesis 14, verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. Very, very, very significant in all of Judeo-Christian faith that Melchizedek shows up here, particularly that he has these articles with him of bread and wine, these religious symbols that come from the new covenant. This is this is well before the establishment of the old covenant. Here comes Melchizedek with the symbols of the new covenant. It's a remarkable picture in in all of world history. Uh, you know, it specifically says that he was the priest of God Most High. So. so you know, you really got to rack your brain with the idea that, okay, let's rewind in creation because we've only got, you know, we're, we're in Genesis chapter 14. We've only got 14 chapters.
prior to this for Melchizedek to come onto the scene and to have an established priesthood. What is this all about? You, you, you have to make some assumptions that here's Adam fallen into sin. God has given him enough instructions that his own son is making sacrifices to God. Cain and Abel. And Cain, filled with rage, turns on Abel, who is, uh, you know, worshiping the Lord. And you have his murder. And then all of that happens subsequently. We can make some assumptions, and I do mean assumptions, about Seth. But, you know, here we come to this moment where Melchizedek appears. And, uh, you know, I think bread and wine, significant to Jesus, if nothing else, Scripture, Holy Spirit confirms he is a priest to God Most High. His, his worship is good, right, proper, acceptable in the sight of the Lord. So there's an established priesthood prior to Moses and Aaron. And then we move into Moses and Aaron. And now we're out of Moses and Aaron. And Hebrews is even going to specifically say that Aaron's priesthood has been annulled. Right? Uh, think about this. If you are, I don't know what, buying a house and you go sign a contract and then you find out, wait a minute, there's a superior contract <laughs> that existed prior to this one that I signed that nullifies this one, you know, you know, it's all paid off or something. However you want to look at it, there's a superior contract to the one you have in your hand. You have to submit to the authority. You have to submit uh, to what has been established after that. So just to summarize this again, and we get a little further insight, and we're still Genesis 14, looking at verse 18. You know, he's the priest of God most high, verse 19, and he blessed him, Melchizedek, to Abraham, blessed, and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. So he even honors him religiously to the point where he gives one-tenth of his possessions uh, to Melchizedek, honoring him as he would the Lord. Remarkable uh, individual, remarkable moment here that one word right Melchizedek for the Jews all of that you know rings the bell in the moment oh you know how priesthood and sacrifices and now you're telling us Jesus died on the cross and we don't have to go see the priest anymore and how is it that you know all of this is going on in Melchizedek oh you know they, they stop and go okay that, that that calculates in here and like I said they'll get much further, we'll get much further explanation when we get into seven. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. I just said some of it. We'll, we'll get into more of it as we uh, move along. Hard to explain, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk 
and not solid food. The contrast of, you know, by now, you should be able, you know, a person who can eat steak is almost, you know, at least mature enough that they could probably even cook steak. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if, if you can sit down and gnaw on uh, meat and, you know, a full meal, you could probably even go through the whole process of acquiring it and preparing it and eating it. And this is, this is what he's saying is, you know, it's like instead of, you know, being able to get yourself what you need that has strong, sustaining nutrition spiritually, somebody's got to hold you and coddle you and tip you back just right and, you know, warm your <laughs> meal, you know, and, and get it, you know, just so you're comfortable and, you know, feed it to you like an infant. You're, you're eating milk. Uh, it should be that you're already able to get to that. I mean, you know, infants are precious. They're wonderful. Just, you know, grandkids right now. Just, I long to see them, long to be with them. Just, it's incredible. But look, man, if you're 23 and I'm having to, you know, warm your bottle up and hold, there's something dramatically wrong with the picture. You know, you get to a place where you understand, look, enough time has passed. You, you have grown and matured and been in these circumstances where you should be able to derive from the word of God that which is going to keep you strong and keep you from faltering and allow you to continue on in a healthy way. And instead, spoon fed, bottle fed. It's not right. There's there's the, the dramatic picture being painted here. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. Here, we're, we're being told you can identify those who are mature and those who are not. By their skill in you know, spiritual meal preparation and consumption. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. By reason of use, by use not only in the practicality. Oh, I've been in Christianity for a long time. Been going to church for many, many, many years. Right. That's the point. But the point is, are you taking in the word in such a way that your function in life is marked by clear spiritual maturity? Because if it's not, then there is a serious problem in the city, right? And, and people do develop problems, you know? parasitic infection you know some dramatic imbalance with their organs you know some gland gets out of whack and throws everything off it's not to say that it's just irresponsibility but it's a mark of ill health if a person can't take in what's good and right and proper and mature and digest it in a way that's right and natural, then you automatically have to say, there's a problem here. 
there's something wrong here. This requires further investigation. We've all seen it. You sit down to talk to somebody about the things of the Lord, and you're laying out things that are weighty and difficult, and then when it's their turn to remark on it, they say something that's completely off the wall, totally immature, and you're left thinking, like, are we on the same page? Like, what are we talking about? Because they can't digest it. They can't take it in. They can't apply it. And you definitely look at their life and see it's not functioning in their world. It's not functioning in their behavior. It's not functioning in their personage. By reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, in direct connection, connection, right? The, the, the therefore... I, uh, come on, class. I'm, I mean, I'm just I'm being overly simplistic, right? But we know, right? If the, if there's a therefore, then you got to find out what the therefore is there for. In light of all we just said, given all that, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. And this is the same idea of completion. That we talked about earlier. Uh, the NIV renders that in uh, the book of James, you know, uh, that you would uh, be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, I think that the New King James Version, the King James Version say, uh, you know, uh, being conformed, new, and perfected. So this idea of completion that, that we're being presented with. You know, let us go on to perfection, completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, he's going to do this twin thing a handful of times. He's going to make a this and a that and a this and a that statement. And it's important that you try to couple them together and, and see what he's saying here. So the foundation of repentance from dead works. And faith toward God. So repentance, dead works. You've got to leave those things behind. Of the doctrine of baptisms. Do you see the plural baptisms there? It's not singular. Okay? And it is not singular in the context. Uh, this is more referring to the old Jewish practices of ceremonial washings that went on. Some of them were sprinkling, showering, and even full uh, submersion underwater. John the Baptist baptizing for repentance was not entirely a new thing for the Jewish religion. Uh, here, he's, he's saying we need to leave all of those simplistic things behind. I don't think that it's it's um, the idea that you know baptism into the faith is something that you know doesn't need to be used anymore. It, you know, just having a debate recently uh, with a person who's hung up on baptism, saying that in order to be saved you must be baptized, and I'm saying no, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved, and obviously the exception right to that rule shows us that the thief at the cross was not baptized and yet jesus said i tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise he received salvation how what 
We know it's through believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, right? Believe and be baptized and you will be saved, you and your household, right? The Philippian jailer. Without the believing, you could be baptized and you're not going to receive salvation. Baptism is not a source of salvation. Okay, Anyone who has ever been born again must be baptized. right? And, and I do mean must. If you've been born again, you must be baptized. Why? Why not? You, you're telling me you, you're born again, but you're saying that you're refusing the baptism? Now I wonder if you're born again. What's your issue, man? I mean, Jesus got in the water, get in the water. Stop complaining, right? What did the eunuch say? Look, there's ba there's water right here. What are, you know, hinders me from being baptized? What hinders you? If, if you've been born again, get baptized. Cut it out. Stop goofing around. Our Lord himself, as I said, got baptized. And anybody, anybody who resists a baptism, now I do. Now, now I am on the page where I'm like, I don't think you are saved. Because you're resisting something that we were commanded to do. I know. It's a paradox. I understand what I'm saying. I hope you can grasp what I'm saying. That baptism isn't the source of salvation. But if you've received that source of salvation, then you should, and I would even go as far as say, must be baptized. You must obey that, and you must do what the Lord commanded us to do. So if you're wrestling with that, then I think you're still in the realm of the babe. Right? I think, I think that it's the necessity that we should understand uh, very clearly here. But, you know, for the Jews that are all caught up in, you know, i got to wash my hands, right? The whole argument about your disciples eat meals without washing their hands, you know, in the special mystical way that we wash our hands. Remember the last time you washed your hands in a mystical way? No, you don't, right? Because it's weird, you know? I mean, just what are you doing? You burn, burn some incense and, I don't know, whirl around in a circle or some weirdness. It's just strange that people have this process that these practices somehow make them more spiritual. You're, you're going to run into people that function like this. So let's leave these things aside of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So the, the doctrines of baptism, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits the maturity, the growth, the, you know, learned these things, moving on sort of attitude that's being presented here. No need to go back and have big, long discussions and arguments about all of these sorts of things. Now, uh, beginning at verse four, we hit a passage of scripture that is wildly contested by the body of Christ. Um, I think this is one of those occasions in the scripture where it's most important to really dig into the very specific words that are used in this passage, to systematically walk through them, see them for what they say, and apply them the way that they are laid out. Spurgeon said of this passage that nothing could be more disheartening and cause more condemnation than hearing the devil 
preach a passage of the scripture. So you can take this passage and do horrible things with it is the point. All of the commentators warn when you get here, slow down, understand the original wording that's here and only take it for what is literally written. Expanding beyond it gets really dangerous. So, verse 4, it begins by saying, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, that become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. So there's the entirety of that. There's a little more to it beyond, but you get the thrust. Now here's the point I want you to really notice. It's the fourth word in, in our translation. Impossible. Okay? It is impossible to repent if this takes place. So just to settle things, the person who does this isn't even going to want to repent. So we'll examine what it means to actually do the things contained in this sh short section. But I, and let me just say right from the beginning, the person who actually does what is described here is almost not even going to have a conscience about it. They're done. They've crossed the line. There's no coming back for it. There's not going to be any desire to repent. And more than anything, that's going to be the difference. You're going to know, oh, I'm actually dealing with someone who's done this. Why? Because they don't care. They don't care. They've walked away. Have you met people who came into the faith and they did whatever they did, right, of varying degrees of difference, and then walked out of the faith, and you talk to them about it now, and they're like, whatever. They don't even care. I mean, there are those people who you see them, and as soon as you see them, they're like trying to hide and dive, and, you know, they don't want to talk, and they, you know, and then when you do talk to them, they're, you know, their whole thing is, I know, I know, I, I, I know I should get right. Doesn't that sound like the prodigal son? Right? Because the prodigal son comes home. So there are those who fall into sin and even, even walk away, but they don't fall away from Christ. Right? They come home. They're still a child of God. They come home. I had a conversation with a guy who I think is, you know, one who has fallen away. Because in himself, he doesn't have any desire to. But as I'm saying, what's going on? Why aren't you in church? Where are you going? He throws out, well, I'm, I must be a prodigal son. I said, oh, really? A prodigal son? Yeah, yeah, I'm a prodigal son. I said, well, prodigal sons come home. So when, when are you planning on doing that? No plan. Not doing it. Just, you know. And that's what he said in the end. Is like, I guess I'm not. Impossible. It is impossible. And that's literally what it means. Impossible for them. Once enlightened. Now this term tasted that's given to us there in the beginning. 
Uh, you can put your bookmark there real quick and just turn back a little bit to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, but we see Jesus, and then down at the end of the verse, taste death for everyone, bringing many sons to glory. It's the idea of completely taking in, right? It's not like you you might like step up to the hors d'oeuvre table and just like sample a little, little, oh, that's pretty good. Oh, that's pretty. It's the idea of a fully took it in, digested entirely. Okay. Once you have tasted. So, so when you're talking about a relationship with the Lord, right? For those who were once, once they've been enlightened and have tasted fully consumed to the point of they are, they are, they are now actually running on. Right, you were exhausted, wiped out, no energy. You've expended everything you've eaten previously. It's been a long time. You finally get food, and you take it and you taste it in your mouth, and now it's made it into your bloodstream, and you're running on the energy from the food you've tasted, eaten, consumed, digested. That's what's being spoken of there. Someone who's taken the Lord in completely to the point. Where their life, they weren't just showing up at church because they got dragged there. They weren't just singing the songs because, oh, they like what these Christians do. This was their person. This is who they are. They've digested this. They have uh, tasted the heavenly gift. So interesting. This gift, the, the, and I, you're going to go home and find 15 commentaries that say different things about this. But if we look at what is written here, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Okay? Uh, how about Ephesians chapter 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So, so this enlightenment that's being spoken of Original word is the same as we think of as enlightenment. Understanding, fully enveloping, completely absorbing, tasting, digesting. The gift, what? The gift of life. You've pulled it in and made it part and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So interesting, the partakers actually has the idea of not only being served by it, but being one who serves it out. So, so a person who's made it all the way to the point where you can look and see the marks of the Holy Spirit functioning in their life, but they also are able to touch and impart other people's lives with it. Someone who's made it this far into the faith, okay? Anyone who's made it this far and then backed out the door to where they don't want nothing to do with it anymore, the author of Hebrews is saying that's a very dangerous game to play. Impossibility was what he put at it. And we do need to leave the marker there. Impossibility. Have tasted the good word of God. That tasting, same idea. A partaker and a distributor of God's word. They made it to that level of function with God's word and the powers of the age to come. Listen, that powers of the age to come are the supernatural occurrences of God, however they might be. 
speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, miraculous provisions, service to the Lord, all the miraculous work of the Lord. Someone who's made it to this level of function. If they fall away. Notice that it doesn't just say if they fall. That that would be really disheartening, right? Because who hasn't done that? <laughs> okay? Who hasn't done that? And we have amazing biblical examples. I mean, we would automatically put David in that category, right? He fell. He screwed up. Uh, we would automatically put Peter in that category, right? But here, put the contrast, Peter versus Judas. And think about Judas, right? Jesus sent him out. They came back and said, we cast out demons in your name, right? They're tripping on that, remember? They're like, I hey, wouldn't believe what happened. We were healing people, raising the dead, and feeding, and you know, casting out demons. Crazy. And he said, hey, you want to rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life, not over the fact that demons obey you. Why? Because walking away, Judas proved, is possible. Right? Peter, how much more walking away can you get than Peter? Right, I, I I swear to God, I do not know that guy. That's a trip to think about that he's saying that. That Jesus is being brought out and makes eye contact with him as those words are falling out of his mouth. That's got that's got to be a horrifying moment of reality. The, the heartbreaking failure of that level of fall, and yet. He didn't fall away, did he, right? right? He sees Jesus and he wants the return. And it's granted to him, isn't it? Right? You love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. He goes through that restoration there. Be, be careful you understand that it's the falling away. To renew them again to repentance. It says uh, in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So again, the desire to repent is evidence that they have not truly fallen away. If, if, they, if they want to come back, if they want to be restored to the Lord, then it seems that what we're being told is, is that it's possible for them to think about this, you guys. Um, there have been many preachers that have taught this passage in an overwhelmingly condemning way, that if you've faltered, if you've failed, if you've sinned, there's no hope for you. Well, who, does, who does that not apply to? Really? I, I mean, I think that the people who act like it doesn't apply to them are probably the biggest hypocrites amongst us. You know, if we, if we had a shovel, we could probably find where the, the skeletons are buried. The, the, you know, everybody's a sinner. And even after we've... There was a big movement in the early church where people uh, were ostracizing others and saying that, you know, especially once you'd been baptized in the faith, if you faltered into sin and it became public knowledge, then this applied to you and you were done. Man, I, I honestly don't I honestly don't know who that does not apply to. I think it's a, an incredibly 
rare thing. The hope is in Jesus Christ, and we see that in what he's saying here. You know, the, the falling away, uh, you know, the lack of restoration since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Full rejection. Walk away. Total denial of the faith. Nothing to do with it. You know, think about that. They were they were at least witness to, if not partakers, in the miracles of Jesus Christ, and then just, nah, I don't believe any of that anymore. That's remarkable that someone could come to that place. Seven, for the earth. Now, now he gives us examples, okay? And it's actually examples. The author of Hebrew gives us stuff that Jesus gave us, and it's actually very straightforward, fairly easy to understand. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs. In comes the rain, out comes the growth, out comes the herb. Okay, so this natural production uh, bears herbs useful to those by whom it is cultivated. The person who planted and tended and weeded and the rain comes and now here comes the crop. The, the image of you know, how many occasions in the scripture does the Lord give us those different images, the sower and the seed and the different soils and all the things of planting and harvesting and fruitfulness to the Lord. And even, you know, John 15 and the, and the vine and abiding in him and the fruit that will be produced as a result. So much of the, the scripture tells us of this fruitfulness to the Lord, useful to those by whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed. You go through all of that work. Think, think, imagine what that's like. You know, maybe you've had that experience. You know, go through great efforts of cultivation and planting and watering and fertilizing and weeding, and, and all you get are thorns and thistles. Not, not even like small harvest, just painful, stabbing, destructive, you know, you want to just burn the whole field when you're done. It's not, it's not producing what you wanted it to produce. Thorns and briars. It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. It's remarkable when you think about what's being said there. Now, now, how about uh, you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7 and see almost the same thing being described by Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. We'll read a fair chunk here, but uh, beginning at verse 15. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like they belong to the flock, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, right? We just heard this, right? Isn't this what the author of Hebrews is telling us? Same thing. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree uh, cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So same scenario. 
Therefore, by their fruits, and there's really the punchline, by their fruits, you will know them. Uh, listen, you know, so many people within the faith look at that statement and they're, they're thinking, yeah, but I don't bear as much fruit as that person over there. It really doesn't matter how much. The issue is, is it good or bad fruit, right? I mean, do we serve the Lord? Do we bring forth good fruit? Or is it just that you have the same old flesh, the same old sin, the same old practices that you've always had, and you're, you're unchanged? You're the same person you were as previous to coming to Christ, uh, then there's a very serious issue. Uh, this, this statement is not to be considered an absolute condemnation. It is the idea of the, the utter rejection of Jesus Christ and the departure from the faith. So don't let anyone try to tell you or teach you otherwise regarding that passage. Verse 9, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. So the whole time that the author is writing what we just previously read, they have in mind that the recipients of this letter are completely different, right? So, so I think some, some authors or commentators actually go as far as saying that everything that was written previously was merely for the point of example in contrast to those that he's speaking to right now. I think very often people to put way too much weight on certain passages of Scripture. Yes, everything we just read, without question, needs to be weighed out. But how about the positive end of things, right? I mean, just let's just move, brush that all off for the moment. And, and think about yourself, right? I know every one of you in this room. There is the fruit of Jesus Christ in your life. Right? Maybe you're sitting here right now measuring yourself saying, yeah, but I wish there were just buckets and baskets and truckloads. Yeah, don't we all, right? Don't we all wish that we didn't have some of the sour markers that we do? But I know us all to be surrendered to the Lord. You know, so yeah, there's going to be pruning and there's got to be work and there's got to be weeding and, you know, greater harvest is what we're looking forward to. But how about we just roll into as believers this concept, right? Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, right? The enemy would love to just get the electron microscope out, you know, and shove your head right in there so you're examining, you know, the nuance of your failure, and that's all you can see, and it looks so cataclysmically large, that you give up all hope. That's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's warning them, but he's saying, dear believers, that's not you. It has application, but let's talk more 
about the fruitfulness of your lives. And then he immediately goes to, is God unjust? What, he's going he's gonna to find some failure in your life and just sweep aside all of your fruitfulness? Yeah, you know, so-and-so has been a wonderful Christian in lots of areas and served me very diligently, and I'm really appreciative of it. But there was that mess up. And so, therefore, condemnation. That's exactly what our enemy wants to do. And, and if we are people, right, who aren't just drinking the milk and are actually discerning the difference between good and bad and digesting the wholesome food of God's word, then we are going to recognize, yeah, no, there's a different message for me in this passage from God that encourages me forward into more and more fruitfulness for the Lord. He's not going to forget these things, your work, your labor, your love, what you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints that do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Press on. Hard work, not slacking off, pushing to the end, right? You, you pushed and pushed, and you can maybe in this, as you're examining, recognize, hey, I've kind of slacked off. <laughs> Lean in harder, right? Uh, do you not recognize? Surely we all here tonight recognize the hour in which we live, right? The condition of the world. This is not the hour to ease off. This is the hour to push forward to the finish line. I, I love that message. Uh, John, you remember Chuck Smith years ago at the pastor's conferences admonishing us to finish well. You know, not just being content with what's already happened or where you currently are. So, so many people have been shipwrecked by that idea of, well, made it to here, you know, guess I'll just sort of suck in the sails and coast across the finish line. Uh, you know, the idea of push to the end and, and finish well. Uh, whatever, you know, degree of that belongs to you, finish well. Minister right to the end, the diligence to, to the full assurance of hope until the end. And then he even gets more specific that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now he's going to talk specifically here about those who through faith and patience. Patience is hard. Amen. It is hard. You, you know, we want it now. We want to see these fulfillments. You know, it just especially when it comes to issues of growth and maturity and fruitfulness, you can get discouraged along the route. And and, and you know, here the author is saying that the, the people we have ex as examples, the patriarchs of our faith, who who showed us how to connect, waited a long time to see you know specific things fulfilled. In their lives, stuff didn't come quickly. Uh, we can, we can be looking at our age, 
and thinking, well, I mean, good Lord, you know, I was praying for that when I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know, hasn't the opportunity really hasn't come. So, you know, guess I'll just throw in the towel here. And that's that's not what the Lord is calling us to. You know, the Lord is calling us uh, to faith and patience, waiting these things out. Uh, they inherited the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, and so now we here we get this first example, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Think about how long that man waited for the fulfillment of God's promises in his life. You know, th- think about it, just hopeful expectation of, oh, i got to have a child. This is going to be a man. Look, man, when you've crested over 100 years old, I, it'd be really tempting to look at the circumstance and say God has failed. That, you know, either God has failed or I, I am a lunatic. I'm certifiable. I just, I've believed, some, I've convinced myself of something that's not going to happen. And yet this is what we're being admonished of, of not only, right, faith, but the patience that accompanies faith. The, these things are, you know, twin catalysts that work together. You can't say I have faith and I'm wicked impatient. <laughs> those those are you know mutually exclusive terms. If you say you have faith, then patience is part of that process. Patience is how the Lord works. You know, this when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. I think we've probably all read this passage, but quite significant the way the explanation comes, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes, right? Hey, you need that done. I'll do that for you. Are you sure you're going to? Yes, I will. And days and weeks pass. And months and years pass. And you remember when you promised me that you were going to do that thing? Uh, I did promise. that. Are you going to do that? I swear to God, right? I, you make the oath. I promise you I will fulfill what I have said. Now, Jesus tells us not to swear by anything other than letting your yes be yes and your no be no, because there's a wickedness, the devil, a falsehood in it. But you get the concept of taking the oath, making the the full proclamation to somebody of, I give you my word, I will fulfill what I said. And that's exactly what's being described here regarding God. So if you go back to this idea of there are those who have walked away. They have completely fallen away from the faith, but not so with you. You're continuing on. For the Jews especially being persecuted at this time, they're looking around saying, you know, this promise of God is getting really painful, man. You know, we don't have our homes anymore. We don't have our wealth anymore. We don't have our health anymore. 
Well, you know, they are literally feeding us to the lions. Where is the fulfillment of this promise? And the author of Hebrews is saying, God has taken the oath. God is saying, literally, literally, I give you my word. That what I have declared to you will be accomplished. I have hung on to Philippians 1.6 for all of my walk with the Lord. Where Paul you know, says to the church at Philippi, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been so many times I looked at myself, my own commitment, my own behavior, and thought, oh, there, I screwed it up royally. And I, I hear the voice of you know, the first man to disciple me, Gary Bowden, saying, well, who started the work, Will? Was it you? No, it was the Lord. Well, who's going to complete it, you or the Lord? Well, that would be the Lord. The Lord started it, and the Lord's going to complete it. He's made the oath. What, what must I do, right? Endure, abide. What did Paul encourage us with? Having done all you can to stand, stand, therefore. Right? He didn't say charge forward, conquer, you know, kick butt, take names. He didn't say any of that. He said, stand your ground. This is my faith. This is what the Lord's done in my life. This is what he's continuing to do in my life. And I'm going to just stand right in this. You know, and whatever opportunities come along, whatever ministries open up, I'll continue to walk through those doors as the Lord provides, but it's it's in that steadfastness that Christ accomplishes his work. If we just stay and endure in the process, you know, it ends all disputes. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the undeniability of the things he said, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The two immutable things, his promise, right? Whatever that specifically was in the case of Abraham, right? A child, the promise, and then he makes the oath. What has he told you? You, you have his word on it, specifically the thing, and then you also have, he has said, I will. I give you my word, I will accomplish this. So you have the promise and the oath, the refuge. This is very much reflective of the cities of refuge that are spoken of in Numbers 35. He, he's painting the picture of your and my desperation, right? Whatever our circumstances are, I need refuge. I need shelter. I need to get out of the situation I'm in into a place of utter protection where nobody can touch me. City of refuge. God inside the fortified walls of his hands, his protection, what it is that he's doing. This is what he is promising. Lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both steadfast and which the presence behind the veil. 
The anchor you have is set behind the veil. That's a sure place. That's a wonderful place to have your anchor set, right? The very presence of God. You can't see it, right? Oh, I don't know. Am I slipping? Am I sliding? Am I listing? Am I moving in this great storm as I'm being battered through life? No, the anchor is set in such a place that it can never be moved. When the seas are calm, you're not overly concerned about whether you have an anchor, right? You can sail, you can move, you can stay, you can go, whatever, you know. It's in the storm that the anchor becomes so critical. It's in the storm where you're one and only. You're not overly concerned. Do I have sails? <laughs> you know, are my sails in good condition? In a storm, I mean, you're battening down everything. You're not overly concerned about all of these. Other. The one thing you want to know that you have in a storm is an anchor. Why? Well, you want to avoid being just driven up onto the rocks. You want to enjoy, you want to, you know, ensure that you're not going to be destroyed. The anchor uh, for us steadfast enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. If you're unsure, you don't know, is this going to hold? Is this what I need? Jesus Christ has already gone in and checked it all out. Isn't it nice? When you're headed into a situation of uncertainty and somebody steps up beside you and says, oh, I've already been through this. I don't know the directions. I don't know how to manage. Where am I going to be able to stop? Where am I going to go? How am I going to, which exit do we get off on? How do I, and they go, oh, I run this route all the time. So let me drive. I'll get you there. Someone who's already gone beyond the veil. Jesus Christ. He's spoken back through that. By his word to us, saying, you can rest in my assurance. I'm going to accomplish all of these things. You don't have to be fretful about what lies ahead of you. I've already finished the work. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And as I promised you, chapter 7 has a tremendous amount to say about Melchizedek. Who he is, what he is, and how he functions. So we'll get into that next week. But, but you need to add that to the concept of how reassuring everything that was just promised to us is. Why? The name attached to that is Melchizedek. We know how that is with certain people, right? You know, whatever your task is, you'll have to think about that. But, you know, some certain thing. When my wife's cooking dinner... I don't have any worries about how dinner's going to turn out. You know what I'm saying? Not, not a worry in the world. Now, when I'm cooking dinner, hit or miss. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Depends on what we're practicing here. There are some things I just, I'll never forget. I was cooking while Christian was home a couple of years ago. I'll wrap it up with this. And uh, I'd gotten on a big spice kick. Just really... You know, wine and everything to it. And I kept tasting it all throughout the process. You know, cook all, it was chicken. Cook all this chicken. Uh, and I got, like, I, back off, I'm making lunch. No one could eat lunch. Way too hot. Way too, just like, you know, maybe if you added twice as much chicken, cut everything down, you might have had, you know, got, gotten that underneath the, you know, five alarm fire 
somewhere along the way. I mean, I'm eating it, sitting at the table, just like beet red, sweating. Right? And you're thinking, yeah, this is great, but not for my granddaughter, you know. Unreliable. Will Cass, you know, preparing dinner. Certain things, cer certain things, right? I'm way more reliable than Lori. Certain things, Lori's way more. Melchizedek guides you from here through the storms of life into eternity behind that veil. You have no worries. You have no worries about what lies ahead. Your anchor is firmly set where it belongs when Jesus Christ is your high priest. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up at 7 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray? You want to fully expand that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your great love, the way that you work in our lives, all that you do and all that you are. Help us to rely upon you. I do mean that, Lord, because we are prone to letting our hearts drift from you, prone to looking at other things and relying upon other things and thinking about other things. Help us to focus ourselves upon what you've done in our lives and what you've done in the lives of those who've gone before us. You've been steadfast. You've been immovable. We thank you for that. We thank you for recording it in your word. Help us to trust it. Help us to rely upon you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.